Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with three experts about civil-military relations. My colleague, Alice Hunt Friend, Senior Fellow in the International Security Program at CSIS and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute, also a former civilian Pentagon official. Phil Carter, Adjunct Professor at Georgetown University Law Center, a former Army officer and also a former civilian Pentagon official. And Major General Retired Charlie Dunlap, Executive Director of the Center on Law, Ethics and National Security at Duke University School of Law and former Deputy Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Air Force. So here we are in the summer of 2020 in what is normally a very sleepy corner of scholarship on civil-military relations. And in the last month, civil-military relations has exploded onto the national stage as a set of issues. Um, provoked most clearly by the protests that uh, came after the killing of George Floyd and the government's response to that. But even before that, with COVID and the questions around the appropriate role for Department of Defense assets and personnel in assisting in the homeland, these issues have really come, I think, forward for Americans in a way that every one of my guests today loves, holds dear, and works on routinely, but maybe is less familiar outside of the current context. So what we're going to do today is really focus on what we've seen happen over the last month and try to put some context around that in terms of civil-military relations. And then we're going to have an episode that follows on where we go, where we go from here. So let me just start uh, maybe we'll start with Phil. What, from your perspective, have been the big issues that have come forward in this past month? And what should people take away who don't spend their days focused on civil-military relations? Thanks, Kath, and it's a great question. The fundamental question I think we're faced now is what we want our military to do when insecurity or turmoil happens at home instead of overseas. And what specific parts of our military do we want doing what in those situations? There is a long history going back to the the time of George Washington of the military putting down things like the Shays Rebellion or the Whiskey Rebellion. But in recent times, this has really been the exception and not the rule. The military provides myriad support functions for law enforcement, but it doesn't actually engage in law enforcement, let alone use force against protesters or other persons in our streets. But that's exactly what we've seen in the past few weeks. And so I think it's a very jarring moment that's given us all reason to question what we really want our military doing here at home. Charlie, do you see the issues the same way? Well, not quite. A couple things. One, I think that we have seen a lot of military support for civilian authorities since the pandemic began. I think it's not particularly a good idea to transmit every national ill into a national security issue involving the military. But in this instance, the National Guard has done a lot of things 
National Guard in particular, but also the active duty forces as a support. Now, what Phil's talking about is the use of the military for civil disorders. I actually think that the active duty military, of course, has not been used for that purpose. There was a threat in use, but it, they weren't actually used for it. Way back in the beginning, I try, I wrote something urging don't militarize the pandemic. Of course, it, it was in a way, and we sent, spent hundreds of millions of dollars on sending ships to LA, the hospital ships, and to New York, and building field hospitals and so forth that were never used. But I think that is really not a civil military relations issue. It's it's a broader issue of how do you prepare and how do you respond to different kinds of disasters. Alice, why don't you give us your thoughts on what the last month has really brought forward for you as someone like your colleagues here who studies civil military relations all the time? One of the things that jumped out to me, especially upon further reflection that didn't get as much attention in the press is the fact that in our system, civilian control of the military is actually divided between the executive and the legislative branches. And there was a lot of attention about how President Trump talked about the use of of the military essentially as a means of suppressing some of the protests that we saw. And then a lot of discussion about Chairman Milley's response and Secretary Esper's response. But there was a lot less attention on what the Congress's role was and should have been. And one of the pieces of it that disturbed me the most was when the Department of Defense signaled that it wasn't going to appear before the House Armed Services Committee after being requested to testify, after the secretary and the chairman were were asked to testify before the HASC about the events in Lafayette Square and the broader question about the use of the military for domestic law enforcement purposes. And I actually was much more chilled by that exchange, even than what we saw in Lafayette Square, because if the Congress's oversight role and responsibility is simply refused by a part of the executive branch, we have a much more fundamental challenge to governance that involves DOD, but actually has broader implications across the governance enterprise. So let's follow that Lafayette Square incident. Here you had the photograph, photo op to some in front of the church across Lafayette Park from the White House. You had the Secretary of Defense, a civilian official, politically appointed, confirmed by the Senate, appearing in that picture. You had the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Senior Military Advisor to that Secretary and to the President on the walk across Lafayette Park, but not in the photo op and in a uniform that some were concerned, gave the view that it was a wartime uniform, or BDUs, for those who follow those issues. And then, of course, the walk across Lafayette Park was not a stroll through the park. It was, in fact, an enforcement action that moved people who were protesting out of the way to engage in this. Okay, so that's sort of the context. But Alice, let's kind of start with you. You had in that both a chairman and a secretary. They took different actions. They have different responsibilities and ethos. How do you think about those sets of actions each took and what does it tell you about that division between uniform military senior leadership and civilian senior leadership, even within the Pentagon? 
Yeah, I really like the way you frame that question, Kath, because as you pointed out, the Secretary of Defense is a politically appointed position. So he is actually in the mix of politics, and it is his responsibility to engage in domestic politics, to be part of the administration, to be part of a party on behalf of the department. And it is the chairman's role to represent and advise or provide the military advice to the president and the Secretary of Defense. And in our system, the military is nonpartisan as a profession. So there is a real distinction there in the politicized aspects of the Secretary of Defense role and the role of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Secretary Esper, later in his comments where he was walking back his walk in Lafayette Park, again said, which he said before, that he personally tries to keep the entire Department of Defense out of politics and that he himself tries to be apolitical and so that he should not have been political. And I actually think that's wrong. I, I think that the, it is the job of the Secretary of Defense to engage in politics, precisely so that the department and the military don't have to. The chairman, however, is an entirely different position. So for the chairman to have reflected on that walk across the square, which is politically symbolic and appears to support what the president is doing and any partisan agenda that the president has, that's extremely problematic for the professional position of the United States military. So I think it's very important to make that distinction between those two roles. So let's ask Charlie and Phil, starting with Charlie, is your sense that the two officials we're talking about, in this case, Esper and Milley, both of who came out later to apologize in different ways and separately for their role in that incident, do you think they have handled the situation well and either in the specific during that period or with their apologies? I think that they have handled it it well, given what happened. We The Lafayette Park thing is 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 just a disaster from beginning and end. It'll be studied as a case study of how not to do something. You know, obviously we'll have presidents who will want to do things. And I think I think Millie found himself caught up in something that he perhaps didn't really understand. Uh, it is his job to understand and and bad on him for not doing that. But I think he recognized that there was, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that there was a distinct political aspect to that and that he needed to set that out. I do think that Milley did himself a favor by, at least in his National War College presentation, that he regretted doing it. I do think it's very hard, and we'll see more of this as the election season comes up, because what is really a political thing and what is really a legitimate you know, activity of an elected official with respect to the military. Unfortunately, President Trump seems to politicize everything in a partisan way. And he's not the only one that's done that. Other presidents, every president probably has done that. But especially at this point, people are going to be um, spring-loaded to do that. So if the president was asking me for advice, which he hasn't, I would say that you really do need to steer clear of that. And by the way, I don't think it's helping him with any of his constituencies, because I think constituencies really do want to see the separation of the military and the civilian. Phil, do you see it this way as well? I think I tend more towards Alice's view than Charlie's. But, you know, the part of the problem here is to borrow from Lin-Manuel Miranda and John Bolton. None of us were in the room where it happened. We have reporting from the Times and the Post that suggests Chairman Milley 
got into a screaming match with the president over invocation of the Insurrection Act. But we also have reporting that shows the chief of staff of the army and the secretary of the army at the FBI's downtown headquarters, pouring over maps, moving troops around the battle space of DC. We have Secretary Esper's comments a couple of days before that he was deploying military forces to states to, quote, dominate the battle space, end quote. So there's a lot of contradictory reporting here, and we don't know what all these actors are doing behind closed doors, as Charlie said, uh, we only see what they're doing publicly or what we get through very selective reporting. That said, I, I disagree with Alice that I think that all of these actors are political. Under our Constitution, they're all officers of the United States, appointed by the president, subject to Senate consent, and they all have a role to play, big P or little P political in determining how the U.S. uses force abroad for the pursuit of policy and how, back to my first point, the U.S. uses its forces at home, too. Those are intensely political questions. For the chairman to render advice on these questions, as he's want to do under Title 10, he has to render political advice. And I think they failed to render good political advice in this case, but they are absolutely political actors. The thing is here, I think they just made the wrong decision. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think the other piece that comes out, you you just talked a little bit about it, Phil, which is this uh, deployment of the National Guard in state capacity. But in the case of the District of Columbia, that state capacity doesn't have the same structure over it, the same political structure. So to be clear, the federal government has a unique role in ordering the National Guard within D.C. And we saw that play out particularly concerning was the use of a helicopter in state National Guard capacity, flying the Red Cross insignia on it, Mm -hmm. using tactics seen in foreign lands. That can get conflated, probably in many Americans' minds, with this idea that Charlie's already talked about, the way in which the Guard in its state capacity is frequently used. So can you talk a little bit about that piece of it? Yeah. So here's the thing. I think we've been doing so much defense support to civil authorities and been sharing so much equipment and training and uniforms back and forth that when the public sees someone coming down the street in camouflage, they don't know whether it's a Customs and Border Patrol tactical element or an element of the National Guard or an element of the 82nd Airborne Division, all of whom were within a 10-mile radius of the Capitol when the Lafayette Square protests happened. And so, you know, it's ironic, 15 years ago, folks like Charlie and I were arguing over the Geneva Convention's requirements to wear a uniform and carry a sign openly as a mark that you are a combatant, because those things were important for purposes of determining who was a detainee and a lawful detainee and a lawful combatant. And now we find ourselves the victims of the same confusion because we have so many forces deployed using military and paramilitary tactics and equipment and organizations and so forth that... I don't think the public knows what they're seeing on the streets anymore. And that has contributed further to an erosion of norms and a slippery slope towards an increasing use of force against our own people at home that's neither effective nor, I think, consistent with our Constitution. Frankly, I don't think that the military really has, even the National Guard, has been as involved with the use of force as historically has been the case. I do think, though, that there are lots of technical legal questions. The Red Cross on the helicopter is fascinating. One reason the Air Force took Red Crosses off of all of its planes is because it 
it's almost impossible to use a plane for anything other than medical if it has a Red Cross on it, even in peacetime. But I think what we're seeing here is the, the need for a little bit of a historical perspective, but that should inform what the National Guard prepares itself to do. And I think that there is a real problem when they're not fully trained. I was really astonished to read some of the stuff I read about the D.C. National Guard, how ill-trained they were for that. You would think of all places in the United States, they would be fully prepared to operate in civil disorders. Now, I will say, when you look historically as to what the troops have done, you know, I think of the uh, desegregating schools in 1957, you had paratroopers who were using bayonets and they actually stabbed one person with a bayonet to desegregate the schools and they whacked another guy over the head. But it was the presence and the, the potential for force that was used. But we're in the 21st century and expectations are different. That's why I think uh, there needs to be a complete rethink of how you, not just for the National Guard, but for the police as well. And I'd also point out one of the things I read in the post was some of the National Guard were being taunted by their family members, taunted or, or yelled at. We always think of the Guard as the ideal force for in their state status for law enforcement. But I think that can work two ways. If you're going to have to use force or the threat of force to control civil disorder, maybe it's better to bring in troops that you're, they're not going to see their brother or cousin you know, as the one that they have to deal with. So I think there's a lot of rethinking has to be done about. Now, let's not forget, 58% of the American people wanted the military to be used to back up the police. So in terms of impacting the public's view of the military, although I totally agree with Phil, I don't think the average person distinguishes between, you know, National Guard and federalized status, state status, or state defense forces, or active duty. I think that we just need some some more thinking, but it's not going to affect my bet is the view of the most of the public as to the military. I think the other important point to bring up about the deployment of the guard to DC was that I, it was 13 different guards from 13 different states, and that didn't actually happen elsewhere in the country that guard from other states were deployed against the wishes of that governor. And so what did happen in D.C. was that there were guardsmen here against the wishes of our mayor, I say as a resident of D.C. And that was, you know, that was just bizarre, right? That's part of D.C.'s bizarre existence administratively in the country. But I think the fact that it was easier to deploy or I suppose easier for the president or whoever the president designated, the AG perhaps, to call upon different federal forces I think also is interesting because it spoke to the power of the states in this capacity over their own National Guard and the politics of that between the federal government and the state governments. Well, Alice, this also getting back to what Charlie just raised, I do think there's this question about the belief of Americans, the trust of Americans going into this crisis and what effect, which we'll simply have to speculate on at this point, the actual failures of some elements of military associated forces in the minds of the public and senior leaders. How do you see this shifting? I mean, 23 different states have used their National Guard with re relationship to COVID. To some extent, you've obviously had state guards used with relation to protest. 
DC is where it all sort of went wildly awry, I think I'm hearing all three of you say. What do you expect to see out the other end of this as it relates to support for the military, retraining priorities, anything like that? Well, so one of the things that all of us that do CivMil love to point out is that most surveys for the last 15, 20 years have shown astronomically high public confidence or trust in the U.S. military, which as an average is true. But if you dig into the numbers, what's really interesting, and Mike Robinson up at West Point and others have done this work, there's actually um, pretty stark differences when it comes to demographics and when it comes to partisanship in that level of confidence. And particularly between Republicans and Democrats, there's on average a 20-point gap in confidence, with Republicans having 20 points more confidence in the military than Democrats do. What's interesting about Democrats is that their confidence in the military varies depending on whether or not the president is a Democrat. Similarly, the little bit of survey work I've seen so far has come from a group called More in Common, the More in Common Project, and they've done some uh, sort of focus grouping on this. And what was interesting to me was that a couple of the people that they have in their focus group talked about their general high confidence in the military, but their concern about the military's behavior with Trump as president. So I think what we're starting to learn is that there are at least some Americans that shift their attitude about their confidence in the military, depending on who the commander in chief is. So what this means is this redounds more to politics and more to the civilian in charge than it does to the military as an institution in which confidence remains pretty stable, but that the national politics surrounding the use of the military does vary confidence in the use of military force. And what I worry about in this particular incident is you had the president and a couple of other prominent members of his party talking about using the United States military against American citizens with punitive force. And... That pulls the military into looking like a partisan instrument through no fault of the military or action of the military itself. But you have partisans talking about the military as if it were a partisan instrument. And I really worry, and and as you pointed out, this is speculative, but I worry that there are some Republicans who already see it that way. And there's evidence that there is a view of the military as co-partisans among GOP voters. I worry that non-GOP voters will start to agree you know, we'll say maybe they are co-partisans. So I think this kind of gets us right to an issue on the retired generals and admirals who have spoken since the incident in Lafayette Square that have come out and written or spoken about their concerns. And this preceded the apologies we've, we've mentioned. So I'm guessing there's some relationship in here. And there's a long history, as you pointed out, of retired general officers both engaging in what is seen by some to be politics, and in some cases is clearly politics, and there's also a lot of controversy over what is appropriate for them to do or not to do. So where do you fall, both in the specific of this case and then how that reflects how you think about it more generally? Well, personally, if you ever see me endorsing a political candidate, please come down and whack me on my head (laughs) completely. But I think Phil makes and and Alice's have made have vindicated almost everything is political. So the idea that a retired officer can speak out on anything and it have no political dimension is probably not possible. That's different than what we saw in the last month. This was 
a hyper-personal attack on the president. It wasn't objectively sitting back and saying, hey, I don't think the conditions for the Insurrection Act have been met. It's rather, it went further than that, all of which is going to be weaponized and it has already been weaponized in the upcoming campaign, although Mr. Biden doesn't seem to know the different statuses of those officers. I think that this will really open the door. I think the whole idea of retired officers not participating in partisan activities and not speaking out, I think that norm is dying. And, you know, we're seeing it in one way now, but I think as we look towards the future, it's it's going to go another way. I still, obviously, I think there's a valid place for retired officers to speak out about issues But I think that's different than what we've seen recently when you're talking about personal attacks. For the future, I think what would be useful is if the public holds the retired generals to the same standards they would hold a politician. Who is this guy or woman? And what do they know about this topic? Because almost none of these retired officers who spoke out were experts on civil disorders in the United States. They're, all their experience was, was not that. And so they weren't particularly expert at this particular issue. And so they should be challenged on that. And there are other things that they speak out about that they don't particularly know a lot about. So they're trading on this, this status and they should be pressed on it. Bill, I think this is an area where I often use the Catholic catechism analogy, which is some people see really bright lines on this issue. Others see sort of a, a manual for the use of your of your free will to divine, you know, the approach in terms of what should be acceptable and appropriate and, and you know, what should not be. How do you think about this, both in how it's played out and throughout the history of the U.S. experience of retired military engaging in politics in one way or another? As a Jewish lawyer, I'm tempted to respond to your catechism with some sort of Talmudic statement about civil-military relations. But, you know, I, I tend to see the horse out of the barn on this issue that after Secretary Mattis and after John Allen and Mike Flynn and after so many generals have been engaged in politics, I don't think we're going to reset the norm to a place where generals abstain, nor do I think we should. I think retired generals, veterans, former diplomats, former intelligence officials, should share their expertise and be part of our marketplace of ideas. I think the issue here is what Alice, I think, put her finger on, which is that the military has this incredible political currency and this throwaway in our domestic political economy that makes them so valuable politically that the parties are going to keep doing this. They're going to keep recruiting and deploying generals. They're going to keep weaponizing veterans. They're going to keep politicizing the military because it works to some extent, maybe not in a direct candidate for candidate sense. There's a fairly poor track record for young vets that are running for Congress, but some of the messages really do sink in. And I think as long as it works and the military remains on this pedestal, then the parties are going to seek to to leverage that as best they can. Yeah, Alice, I I know you and Charlie have gone back and forth uh, even before we we recorded today a little bit on this issue of the preferenced voice 
of the military in U.S. society, the Gallup poll, as has already been mentioned, which actually goes back to 85, as I recall, in terms of the positive view of the U.S. military as the most trusted institution. Now, I think the 2019 Gallup poll was 73% of Americans had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the military. I mean, it's pretty high. And so when a retired military comes out, whether it's an Admiral Mullen or another and makes a comment, it seems to carry a lot of weight. And, you know, what is your view on how we should think about that? It's much more complicated than it used to be, (laughs) I guess I'll say. So first of all, one of the things I also like to point out about the confidence in the military institution is that it is coupled with very, very low rates of confidence in governing institutions. So the fact that we have really high rates of confidence in the military and pretty low rates of confidence in the civilian arms of government is pretty concerning when you're a geek like me and you worry about civilian control of the military in a meaningful sense, not just in a legalistic sense as well. Not that the law is not meaningful, gentlemen. But, you know, when it comes to how important are military voices in these debates, I'm always reminded I when Mullen spoke out recently, which he, of course, had not been doing, he himself, when he was chairman, this was an important issue to him, and he was constantly reinforcing nonpartisanship with the force. And he has said negative things about retired general and flag officers getting themselves involved in politics. And so, of course, for him to write that op-ed piece criticizing the president and Esper for their comments and, and General Milley was, you know, kind of a bombshell for those of us that follow it. So I eagerly sent a text message to a friend of mine in California who doesn't do this at all, but she's very highly educated. She's very, very smart. She follows the news and said, wow, Mullen just spoke out. And she said, who's that? And I I think that actually, you know, most Americans aren't sure of who these folks are. You know, my colleague, Jim Golby, who I do the Thank You for Your Service podcast with, has done some survey work with Peter Fever. And they similarly found that people knew who Colin Powell was and David Petraeus. And I think that was it. So, you know, kind of folks in the D.C. firmament think of these big names with stars on their shoulders, but actually it doesn't much land with American audiences. And so therefore it's all elite signaling. And to the extent that there are general and flag officers making partisan signals to other elites, I think that that has its most immediate corrosive effects on how we all relate to each other at the apex of government. And I'm still thinking through the so what of that. Well, let me close this, and I'll start with Charlie, close this segment on kind of a more hopeful, I mean, you can glass half full, glass half empty, I suppose, but you did see in the last month also some profiles in courage from senior uniform officers on issues relating to racism in the armed services and racism in society. And maybe starting with Charlie, I would just love to get your thoughts on the role of these senior leaders inside the military and setting norms when it comes to major social issues that are happening outside of the military, but that affect it. And then do you think that has a a follow-on, a knock-on effect in society more broadly? Well, I agree with you, Kath. I think that they did absolutely the right thing. I don't see race as a political issue in that way. It's a fundamental human rights issue. But more than that, it's a readiness issue. And so I think that they were absolutely correct in speaking out on it. They needed to do it. They ought to do it. And so I do think that it has influence inside the armed forces. 
And what happens inside the armed forces eventually does percolate out to the rest of society. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I do think that the desegregation of the armed forces did have an effect in helping to desegregate the country because you did have a number of people who served in the armed forces and, and got to meet people and see that it could work. And it's not perfect. Uh, the military isn't perfect now in this regard, but I, I don't see that as, as a problematic issue at all in terms of civil military relations. I think it's one of the things that people admire about the leadership in the armed forces. Definitely supportive of what they did. I think the ledger's more mixed. You know, the, there was a picture a while ago of all the four stars, or at least all the combatant commanders and service chiefs in a room with the president, and it didn't really look like America. It was all white men. And now there's one African-American in that mix, the new service chief for the Air Force, C.Q. Brown. But it's still a military leadership that doesn't look like America, even now, 70 plus years after President Truman desegregated the military. But, you know, on the plus side, I actually look at how the military has accommodated the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell as a more hopeful signal. If you would have told me in 2005 or 1995 that the official Twitter platform of the Marine Corps would have a rainbow flag, I would have laughed at you. And yet now it does. And it does in part because the services have really done this right, I think, because gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender service members were already part of the force and have always been part of the force. And so now that they could be who they are, uh, the force has just accepted them as the service members that they always were. Race and gender, though, have been much harder. And so I think it is a parable for America in that the military can get better, but it's also a parable that the military has a long way to go. Alice, you get the last word. Yeah, I really agree with Charlie and, and Phil on this. I applauded all of the statements that we saw saying, you know what, racism is a major issue in American society, and it is therefore also a major issue for the United States military at all ranks. And I also thought it was really important to see senior most leaders, black senior most leaders, talk about their own experiences outside and inside the military. And I think the services showed real integrity in taking on these conversations, you know, and really being willing to, to look the problem in the eye. You know, I think that that was an obvious example of why the American people tend to admire their military, because their military can do things like this, right? And so I also agree. I think that was actually exactly the kinds of speech and the kinds of things you want to see coming out of military leadership. And that's that's all goodness. Well, Charlie Dunlap, Phil Carter, Alice Friend, thank you so much for joining me today. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.